Good morning, everyone. We are the small but mighty group who is here on this snowy morning. Thank you for being here. My name is Amanda Barker. I am on the Adult Formation Committee, the group of individuals that kind of sets the um, curriculum for what we do during the Dean's Forum and uh, Cathedral Night. Um, it is our pleasure to often uh, ask our priest here at the cathedral and uh, to take on some weighty subjects with us. And uh, Canon Broderick, it's is an exceptional teacher. Um, I could not be more delighted that he's taking on creeds and baptisms. This is something I love to sink my teeth into and, and think critically and imaginatively. And here is a safe space for us all to talk about this together. Um, with, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our Canon Broderick, who is our Canon presenter in charge of lit liturgy and our services, and he, he is an expert and wise soul on matters like this. So thank you for being here with us this morning. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Loving God, we thank you for this day, for this time together. We thank you for the sacraments, chiefly baptism and the Eucharist, for the love that breaks through them to us, for the reminders that we belong to you and that we are loved beyond measure. In Christ we pray, amen. So, all, all of this to me is, is very exhilarating. It's, it's just fun um, to be with you in a different way. Preaching is so different from teaching. Um, they're both in dialogue because if you see people nodding off when you're preaching, that's a dialogue. <laughs> Um, and, and teaching is a dialogue in a different way. So it's, it's just fun to be with you in, in this way. So do you have a handout? Handouts were up on the table. If you need one, please get one. So we have a lot to cover in a very short time. And so we'll just dive right in. Um, both Sundays, I have included artwork um, in our handouts. Last week was one from the 1870s or so, or actually early 20th century, by a black artist who was raised by formerly enslaved people. And it was um, slaves reading the Bible in Virginia. Um, and we didn't discuss it because I thought piece spoke for itself um, and much of what we were talking about. Um, but I included artwork last week and this week to reinforce something that usually goes without saying in an Episcopal church. Matter matters to God. Matter matters to God. These bodies, these lives we live, the physical contact we share with those we love, the music we listen to, the ways we move about in this world, 
they all matter to God. And there is no way to escape this concrete reality of Christian life. It is through the senses that the living God comes to us. This is true throughout the Hebrew Bible, and it is true of people's encounters with Jesus as expounded upon in the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles and the letters. This is no less true of the visual arts, media in which we are invited to see God. And even though the word see is inadequate at best, a church is adorned with stained glass and fine woodwork and steelwork because sacred architecture is a sermon when the preacher is boring. <laughs> In 2011, iconographer Kelly Latimer wrote the icon before you this morning at the behest of Mark Bazzuti Jones, who's a priest at Trinity Wall Street, New York City. Regarding this depiction of the Trinity, Kelly has this to say, quote, I was not taught by a traditional iconographer, and so to some, I am breaking many rules. There are icons here that people may find theologically unsound or wrong, or for others, helpful and inspiring. I think both reactions are important. My hope is that these icons do what all art can potentially do, which is to create more dialogue. This, of course, is modeled after Rublev's icon, iconic icon, might one, one might call it, um, and is interesting, of course, because of the people depicted here as the Trinity. And we also know, I mean, one of the weird things about Rublev's icon is that it's not clear whether Rublev is depicting the Trinity or depicting the story from Genesis, the Oaks of Mamre story, where Abraham and Sarah are visited by three mysterious people. And in the early church, that story was understood as a foreshadowing of what we understand as the Trinity. But just like Rublev's icon, space is left in a fourth place. So, so if you're looking directly at the icon, notice that there is a fourth place. We are invited to be present to the mystery that is the triune God the trinity of persons we praise privately in prayer at home and publicly in the liturgy of the church on any Sunday or feast. This fourth place in this icon is for us to pray, to join in the life of the trinity that we were first initiated in, in baptism. I you know, some talking about creeds and baptism, you don't, I mean, 
I don't know where to begin. I mean, so I think an icon is a good place to begin. But there are so many books about so many different things in regards to the creeds and, and baptism. And I couldn't help but be brought back to the Trinity. And I think for me, and we'll get into this later, for me, the Trinity or the triune life or the triune God is what links the creeds and baptism together. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, who is actually a really, really good poet, said the following about us who are baptized and the Trinity. The church is the community of those who have been immersed in Jesus's life, overwhelmed by it. In baptisms, the waters close over their heads and are brought into new life by being given a new relationship with God and each other, end quote. Notice here in, in Rowan Williams' quote, and also in many ways in this icon, that a person does not think herself or himself or their self into this new relationship with God. We don't think ourselves into new relationships. Instead, one is brought into this new relationship with the stuff of God's creation. In this instance, water and words. So in in anything that we discuss today, we have to get out of this Protestant idea that God is primarily concerned with our brains <laughs> or our minds. That there is some wisdom in what would, one would call a little c Catholic understanding, so a universal, so the undivided church, the church before the great schism of 1054, so the Eastern church and the Western church together. This idea that God in baptism, in the sacraments, in life as a Christian, claims not just our minds, but our whole beings. And our whole being, our whole bodies, our whole experiences of God are valuable to God. Matter matters to God. It is these words. So we're brought into this new relationship with God and with each other in baptism. And it is these words. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit that are repeated, interestingly enough, at the beginning of our communion liturgies, when the priest says, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the people respond, and blessed be God's kingdom now and forever. And it is that Trinitarian language that links not only the creeds to holy baptism, but holy baptism to holy Eucharist. Again, the stuff of God's good creation, this time as bread and wine, 
is the instrument that links our mortal bodies to the immortality and love found in the living God. While the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed have often been used as litmus tests for right belief or orthodoxy, it is important to remember the Apostles' Creed, the Apostle Creed, the Apostles' Creed's other orientation or use. The Apostles' Creed was initially an instructional text for those preparing to receive the sacrament of holy baptism. Is it articulated in a way, if written today, that we would articulate that? No, probably not. But this is the ancient living faith as articulated by the several Catholic, small c, or universal churches of the East and West. Again, we are reminded in all of this of the stuff of which we are made and remade in birth and baptism as we publicly and actively bless the name of the living God in the midst of the people of God. There's a Russian Orthodox theologian, Alexander Shmeyman, who says that our primary vocation as human beings is that of the homo adorans or the praying human, the believing human, the worshiping human. It is in liturgy that this vocation is renewed for us. And again, this does not just take place in our heads, but in our actions as we kneel and as we stand, as we make the sign of the cross at the font or at the mention of the Trinity or bowing at the name of Jesus or receiving bread and wine when we pass the peace. It is in these holy exercises that our senses themselves are honed to receive and perceive the goodness and faithfulness and love of God all around us. And so as we kind of wrap up this beginning time together, I would like for you to use your imagination if you can and, and really Prayer and faith is really just imagination at work. And with one or two people near you, discuss where you see yourself in this icon. Possibly in the fourth place, which is that place between the two outer persons of the Trinity. Or even as one of these people. So we have about five minutes for that discussion. Where do you see yourself in this icon? Perfect. So one thing that my um, inadequately caffeinated brain failed to say and even to include in my manuscript is this that when we are baptized, we are gathered into the life of the Trinity as expressed in the church. When we receive Holy Eucharist, we are 
once again gathered into the life of the Trinity. And, and, and what's interesting, and a lot of sacramental theologians and liturgists, et cetera, debate about this. And I think maybe there are like two camps to, in, in which to see this. In the East, in the Eastern Church, so Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Catholic, et cetera, Russia, Greece, et cetera, Ethiopia. The purpose of the sacraments is to actually, you know, in the West, we often think that the, when the priest touches matter, it then becomes holy. Very Western idea. In the East, the understanding is that all matter, by virtue of Jesus's incarnation, is already sanctified and blessed by God. And that the priest's prayer with bread and wine or at holy water, etc., is to actually uncover what's already there, which is, I would say in many ways, a very Anglican approach too, that really matches our sensibility. And so you're not being gathered into the Trinity when you're baptized or when you receive Holy Communion. You're already a part of the life of the Trinity, always. And baptism uncovers that for you. The Eucharist uncovers that for you. It makes us that much more conscious of the reality that we're already participating in. So that's why I wanted you to imagine yourself there because you're already there, yes? Yes. I think both. I think both. I think it can be um, in the same way, you know, if I lose a key in a messy room and I have to move things out of the way just to find the key, I think it does both. It kind of takes the stuff off the surface that needs to get out of the way and helps you have that attention on that one thing. So we are always a part of the love and the dance and the community that is the Trinity. So our first part, we talked a little bit about our liturgical orientation, and now we'll talk a little bit about our creedal orientation. And I'll say a little bit more later about why we are a creedal tradition and not a confessional tradition. It is fair to say that while some denominations have books upon books of confessions, which are usually long doctrinal statements and theological white papers, Anglicanism or the Episcopal Church has understood itself more as a belonging tradition than a believing tradition. I say this because historically, we have been quite generous in the practice of receiving new members from other Christian traditions. I was in a catechumenic class a few weeks ago here at St. John's Cathedral. There were 30 people in the class. Three of them had been raised in the Episcopal Church. The other 27 of us were transplants from other traditions. 
For instance, in the Episcopal Church, in order to become a member of a given parish, and this is just something good for y'all to know, and I know this has not always been the case, but this is the current case in the Episcopal Church, one does not need to be confirmed to be a member of an Episcopal parish. Rather, one simply has to show proof they were baptized in the name of the Trinity, no matter what tradition you're coming from, and you will be considered a member of the Episcopal Church. You don't have to believe something in order to become Episcopal. You have to have had something done to you namely in the sacrament of holy baptism. By virtue of your Trinitarian baptism, we assume you have some relationship, however intimate, we do not particularly care, with the creeds of the undivided, which is basically a shorthand way of saying the pre-great schism church. So the undivided church, is a term that a lot of scholars use to describe the era from basically the year zero in the common era to 1054. 1054 is the year that the Eastern Church and the Western Church formally parted ways. But all of our creeds that we say in church, whether it's the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, there's also the Athanasian Creed, which is a little more complicated in the back of the Book of Common Prayer. It's there for a good reason. Um, all of those were composed and thought about before the church split in 1054. So when I refer to the undivided church, I'm referring to everything that the church believed and practiced in East and West before 1054. So when there was, in many ways, still one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I mean, that's a debatable term, but it's a great way to say it. It's more aspirational than it was real. So the undivided church. and. And, and we make these assumptions about your Trinitarian baptism and accepting you as a member because numbers-wise, this covers a large number of Christians in the world. So think about it. There are a billion Roman Catholics, at least, in the world. They're Trinitarian. 300 million Eastern Orthodox Christians, they're Trinitarian. There are 70 million Anglicans. We're Trinitarian. Most Protestants are Trinitarian, and that's many, many millions of people. Lutherans, um, I think that they're a, almost as big as we are. They're like 50 million across the world. They're Trinitarian. So you start kind of building the list or your team of people, and this covers like 95% of Christians. There's some unique Christian groups, oneness Pentecostals, they are not Trinitarian. Mormons are not technically Trinitarian, though in many pastoral instances we do recognize their baptism, um, specifically in the state of Utah. 
um, Jehovah's Witnesses are not Trinitarian. So it's a, it's a pretty small number of Christians who are not themselves Trinitarian. I'll give you an example. When I was confirmed in the Episcopal Church, all that was needed was my proof of Trinitarian baptism. I did choose the path of confirmation, but I did not have to choose that path in order to join the Episcopal Church. It was sufficient that the seal of the triune God had been spoken over me in baptism those many years before. This is, of course, a part of us being a part, a branch, of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This oneness, this unity, is not an idea. It is a practice. As one is baptized, one becomes a part of the one church of Jesus Christ. And who are we to claim our version of the Trinity, or anything else for that matter, is of a better quality than someone else's? Is it more tasteful? Yes. But better? Probably not. I am often quick to say this to pro, you know, Protestant friends who are not Episcopal. Because my life is very boring and I have conversations like this with friends. <laughs> that we are creedal. Episcopalians are creedal, not confessional. To be creedal is to accept the creeds, as we said, of the undivided church. The Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, the councils of Ephesus, Chalcedon, etc., etc. As central articulations of the nature of God and the Christian life. To be confessional is to, quote, address immediate needs and concerns of the time through doctrinal statements that demand agreement. So there's nothing wrong with being confessional. There are times in history that actually call for the church to be confessional and to say, what side are we on about any given thing? Um, this is why, um, and we talked about the German Lutheran church during the Holocaust last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was ordained in kind of the mainstream German Lutheran church, founded a confessional movement within the German Lutheran church that denounced Nazism. You should do that. If there are Nazis, you should be confessional as a Christian. You are baptized in the name of a God who is a God of justice and love. So there are moments when being confessional is very important. But for the most part, we are creedal. And we prefer a minimalist approach to the essentials of Christian faith. Again, our question errs on the side of belonging, not believing. Have you been baptized in the name of the Trinity? If so, you're one of ours. But more importantly, you belong to the triune God. The bond that God forms in baptism, according to the Book of Common Prayer, is indissoluble. This then brings us to a matter I have discussed before, but I'm always happy to discuss again. 
Beginning on Lent 1 of 2018, the 10.30 a.m. congregation began saying an older translation of the Nicene Creed than has been said in previous years. While it is tempting to call this older translation a new translation, that is imprecise at best and misleading at worst. When the Nicene Creed was composed in the fourth century, it was originally this term, and actually I have numbered the lines for you so that we can look at this quickly. So in line on page two, in line 26, it originally read in the fourth century, who proceeds from the Father. And what the English language liturgical consultation, and basically they oversee the translation of ecumenical texts, like the Lord's Prayer, the creeds, etc., that you know, a billion and a half Christians say. What they say, what they do here, and they did this back in the 80s, they bracketed and the sun. And we'll get to why and the sun was added in the West and not the East. In the sixth century, the church in Toledo, Spain, isn't this interesting? Why are we even talking about people in the sixth century in Toledo, Spain, not Toledo, Ohio? And they in Spain were part of the burgeoning Western church. And a little, I mean, even further into the weeds, they were combating a heresy called Arianism. And Arianism is the heresy that claimed that Jesus was not fully divine. So you're living in a region where people are arguing about the nature of Jesus. And, and if you notice, a lot of the arguments in the church are about bodies. Did Jesus have a real body? Did Jesus simply float above the ground? Um, was Jesus just, I mean, there were heresies that Jesus was an apparition and didn't have a body at all. He just kind of appeared and disappeared, which he sort of did that after the resurrection. Um, but they are saying this all was happening before the resurrection as well. So you, they're fighting Arianism in the sixth century in Toledo, Spain, very specific. So the church in that region added and the son. and was eventually accepted, that line was eventually accepted by the whole Western church around the year 1000 in Rome. It's important to note that this addition, which was accepted by the Western church, was never accepted by the Eastern church. And this is before the Great Schism. And actually, it was one of the things that precipitated the Great Schism in 1054. As with all major church conflicts, it matters not when they actually happen, because they all happened two weeks ago. You have been a part of churches long enough to know when there has been a conflict, it doesn't matter if it was 35 years ago, it was two weeks ago. And so in the mid 
or actually the late 20th century, and this is very weird, very, very weird about the Episcopal Church. So we have very good relationships with the Oriental Orthodox Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is very weird to me. Um, and in many ways, it's better than our relationships with the Roman Catholic Church. So, for instance, this is anecdotal, but in Memphis, there's a pretty large Greek population. And uh, there are a lot of Greek Episcopalians, which is counterintuitive. And they also are really big in barbecue in Memphis as well. They, there's a Greek family that owns kind of the most iconic barbecue restaurant in Memphis. Rendezvous, yes. Um, the Vergus family. And a lot of them are Episcopalians. And, you know, I'm curious. I'm new to the city. And I'm like, why, why are all of these Greek people Episcopalians? And according to one person in the family, when they were leaving Greece, their village priest said, join the Episcopal Church. Do not join the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> because these conflicts happened two weeks ago, not a thousand years ago. And in many ways, the Eastern Church, our sensibilities are just so much more, in many ways, Eastern than they are Western. We are much more inclined to be mystical. We are much more inclined to think about kind of the body as opposed to just the mind. We, we tend to be more Eastern in our sensibility anyway. But in the 1970s, when kind of at the height of ecumenical dialogue between the Episcopal Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches and Oriental Orthodox Churches, the decision was made and it was recommended, and this was adopted in 1994, that that phrase, and the son, which is called the filioque, Clause in Latin. Um, in seminary, we used to joke, do you filly okay about the filly okay? Which is a horrible joke. It's not even a joke, it's so bad. The filly okay clause. We, the, the Anglican Eastern Orthodox Dialogue Committee said in every subsequent copy of the Book of Common Prayer or revision of the Book of Common Prayer, you need to take that phrase out. And that was adopted by, in, by General Convention in 1994. And this is because the Eastern Church is still very angry about the fact that the Western Church inserted three words into the Nicene Creed. So a part of this, and, and the reason we adopted this at 1030, is, well, number one, I think we're very innovative and forward-thinking with liturgy at St. John's Cathedral, and, and this, is, this much predates me. Um, you've usually had very good liturgists as priests at this church, and very good liturgists as lay staff and volunteers as well. Um, you have a, a long tradition of that here. 
And so part of what we're always thinking is, you know, we are worshiping as a parish, we are worshiping as a cathedral, we are worshiping as an Anglican community of faith. And, and we belong to something much bigger at many times than just the Episcopal Church. We belong to the Anglican communion. And even beyond that, we belong to this kind of ecosystem of small c Catholic traditions universal traditions that draw from the tradition of the undivided church. And so that was why we decided to go ahead and um, drop the filioque, because basically we're preparing the Episcopal Church for the adoption of a new prayer book, maybe sometime before I die. Um, it may happen, it may not. That, that will be the great question of the next 20 years. But in light of all of this, it is worth bringing attention to two other noticeable difference in this older, more ecumenical translation of the Nicene Creed. The first one being, for us and for our salvation. And this is found in line 13. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. The English language liturgical consultation, the body of people responsible again for the translation of shared liturgical texts like the Lord's Prayer, etc., has said the following about this. The Creed wants to make it clear that Jesus, the incarnate Son, is completely God and completely human. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we're still having these conversations 2,000 years later. Like, what, who is Jesus and what is the significance of someone who is both human and divine? And that the operation of both the mother of God and the spirit were equally essential. So we're trusting with this older translation of the creed, that there was synergy, equal synergy, between Mary and the Holy Spirit, which is kind of muddled a little bit by the translation that we say at 8 a.m. And then we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, which is found on line 25. Who proceeds from the Father? Who, with the Father and the Son, is worshiped and glorified? Who has spoken through the prophets? Members of that consultation say this about their choice of who instead of him. Quote, these lines, and this is so Concise. This is literally all they say. These lines have been recast to follow the original text more closely and also to avoid referring unnecessarily to the Holy Spirit as he, end quote. It's like, okay, that's very simple. I understand what you're saying. Um, and, and I've left you on page three um, more detailed unpacking of all of that. I hope you have sensed a theme in our discussion so far. To pray the creeds, and I think that's a great way of referring to saying the creed, is praying the creed. 
And in some parishes, you've probably seen this before, and I don't know if this has happened here before, they sing the creed. It's to join in a chorus sung by the church Catholic, small c, east and west. It is to participate in the life of the Holy Trinity. It is to imagine ourselves as being a part of the Trinity among the holy people of God in the context of receiving nourishment and forgiveness and power at the holy table. This, of course, makes our recitation of two different translations of the Nicene Creed a bit uncomfortable for those familiar with this ongoing custom at St. John's. And so on Advent 1 of this year, we will be switching at 8 o'clock to, our, to the, newer, the older <laughs> translation of the Creed. Um, I think our 1030 congregation has just now gotten accustomed to it. Um, as with any liturgical text, it takes a, a while to kind of sink into it and, and let it become second nature. And so we'll all be gentle with ourselves as we um, make that turn at the eight o'clock service. And our copies of the Book of Common Prayer throughout the cathedral and the chapel will be changed to reflect this shift. And again, this is a shift that is happening eventually with the adoption of a new Book of Common Prayer. Um, and this was adopted, of course, back in 1994. And this will bring us into closer union with Christians throughout the world who confess the historic triune faith into which we were all baptized, no matter our several Christian backgrounds. And this brings us to our final point. So we've talked about being having a liturgical orientation, having a creedal orientation, and now having a sacramental orientation. The sacramental orientation of baptism and the creeds. As mentioned earlier, in Anglicanism, the combination of water, an element in God's good creation and the words of the Trinity spoken over a person being baptized is the outward visible sign of God's inward invisible grace at work in a given person's life. It is these water and words we immerse our hands and bodies and lives in when we enter our space on Sundays and celebrate the goodness of God in Christ with one another. Holy Eucharist is, as scholars have said before, the repeatable act of baptism. Eucharist is the repeatable act of baptism. It is in water and bread and wine, the touching, the passing, and the receiving through holy physical matter that we realize that we ourselves are made of the stuff of God. Gordon Lathrop, who I quoted last week, is a Lutheran theologian. He has this to say about the sacramental nature of creeds and baptism. And this is on page four of your handout. He said, when I was baptized, I was gathered into a community that trusts these things. The actual, actual world is good and held by God. 
the same God engages with the real suffering. So think about it this way. Think about the, the creed, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed as being three sections. And when you look at it in the Book of Common Prayer, it is actually typeset in three sections. We, we block it here because of space and our leaflets, but in the Book of Common Prayer really has those three sections. So the first section can be summarized as the actual world is good and held by God. The second section about Jesus, the same God engages with the real suffering, sin, and death of all this world and may be encountered where we had not expected God to be, which is a cross. No one would expect God to end up on a cross. And then the third, regarding the Holy Spirit, this same God gives us the gift to live out of such faith rather than out of fear and guilt and death. I was brought through the waters to trust that there is a good creation, that I can tell the truth about suffering and death, and that God's spirit is life-giving. That's like a shorthand version of the creed. It's a beautiful shorthand version of the creed. This is the invitation of the creeds, to rise from the waters of baptism into dynamic life with the living God who does not shirk from the messiness of our lives. It is to hear the words of love spoken over us as we are immersed into Christ anew. So next week we will baptize five babies at 1030 and one teenager at the wilderness. And the words of love spoken over them next week will be the words of love that they hear Sunday in and Sunday out at the Holy Eucharist. It is to be filled with courage to face the world again. That's an invitation of the creed. The courage to face the world again. A few years ago, I read a wonderful, wonderful essay by none other than a woman named Dorothy Fordenberry, who is actually a humorist and writes for um, the Hulu series, The Handmaid's Tale. She's very, very funny. And kind of out of character, she wrote a lovely essay that is basically an argument about why she attends church and why she drags her kid to church every Sunday in LA, a very secular city. And she's Catholic. And the essay is called Half Full of Grace. And it's a long quote, but it's inspiring at best and at least too. She said, I like being Catholic because long ago, people who were smarter than me and thought about it much longer than I have time to figure, than I have time to, figured out what I'm supposed to believe. All I have to do is show up and recite a long list that starts with, I believe, and ends with the title of a Mountain Goats album. 
whether I actually believe all the stuff about Jesus and Mary and light from light, true God from true God varies. Most of the time I do, I think. Sometimes I don't. The single most annoying thing about a non-religious person, thing a non-religious person can say in my opinion, isn't that religion is oppressive or that religious people are brainwashed. It's the kind, patronizing way that non-religious people have of saying, you know, sometimes I wish I were religious. I wish I could have that certainty. It just seems so comforting to never doubt things. Well, sometimes I wish I had the certainty of an atheist. I wish I could be positive that there was no God and that Sundays were for brunch that dead people stayed dead and prayer was useless and Jesus was nothing more than a really great teacher. But I believe too much, at least sometimes, to be certain about that. Sometimes I feel like I believe almost everything the church teaches and sometimes I feel like I believe almost nothing. But if I'm anywhere from one to 99% on the belief scale, my response is the same. If it's more than zero, I should go to church. <laughs> Isn't that, a, I mean, she's awesome. She's so smart and funny and thoughtful. I'm not Catholic in the same way that Dorothy is Catholic. But her humorous, skeptical words resonate with me. This understanding of the creeds makes it less a litmus test and more of a springboard for participation in the life of the Trinity. And that may very well be a helpful way of interpreting the creed's place in our services of baptism, prayer, Holy Eucharist, and burial as prosaic verses that ground us in the dynamism of the Trinity. For it is the creator's world that we are invited to become curious and passionate and articulate about. The creeds acknowledge that we were made for goodness and God is companion to us, not only when life is good, but God companions us in suffering and death and resurrection, that the spirit is yet brooding over the face of the deep, giving life and being the animating force, working behind, above, and through creation. And when our palms are suspended for a moment to receive the bread, we are marking the space before us as holy and mysterious. We are marking the space before us as a gift worthy of gratitude. Brought to our knees, our only words are yes, which is what amen means. Yes, and thank you. And in that gratitude, we are alive before God and one another, alive to be healed and in turn, to heal our fractured world. Are there any question? <laughs> we just have time for one question, I think. <laughs> My favorite barbecue place. 
Um, in Memphis, my favorite barbecue place is a place called Payne's. Um, and you can't use a credit card there, which is a really good sign. Um, it's really, really good. Have y'all seen the NBC show, This Is Us, by chance? Pains is featured in, in one of the episodes on Memphis in that show. Well, I love Pains. Any questions related to the Trinity or the, <laughs> or the creeds or baptism? I, which I can't paraphrase, you know, I don't think, uh, that uh, in the sacraments, uh, the, the holiness is being uncovered. And you said that about the Eucharist. And that seems to be conflicting with my continued struggle to uh, reaffirm my belief in the real presence of Jesus Christ, body and blood, in the, in the Eucharist. Absolutely. So you bring up a, a great, um, long wrestle in the church, wrestling match, really over language. So historically, Roman Catholics have affirmed transubstantiation. And Lutherans, to some extent, have affirmed consubstantiation. And we have affirmed, okay, that's great. <laughs> Those are two great ideas. Transubstantiation is that Christ, the, the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. Consubstantiation is the spirit of God that enliven the bread and wine come alongside it and make it the body and blood of Christ. I mean, so it's, it's really very close understanding. And I think, you know, sometimes when we all huddle in our denominations, we get really serious about things and we think that everyone else is wrong. And through ecumenical dialogue in the 20th century, late 20th century, post-Vatican II, Second Vatican Council, the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the, the Orthodox Church, all decided that we would start using the phrase that Dick used, the real presence of Christ. So we believe in the real presence that God in Christ is truly present in the bread and the wine. Everyone has different ideas about how that happens. People even have different ideas about when that happens. So there's some people who say it happens at the institution narrative, which people used to call the words of consecration, this do in remembrance of me, bell rings. Then the host and the wine are elevated, and in that moment, they become the body of Christ. There are some who believe that. There are some who believe that it doesn't become the body and blood of Christ until the priest's hands are on it or hovering over it, and we say what's called the epiclesis, which is a prayer of the spirit over the bread and the wine. And then some people believe that it becomes the body and blood of Christ at the great amen. This is the only point of the Book of Common Prayer where amen is in all caps. And it's when the people say amen that it's transformed. We will not worry ourselves with such matters. 
we know, though, that it is Christ's body and blood. This is something our tradition affirms. And as my liturgy professor would always say, the important thing about sacraments is that we become that which we receive. And so the important formational dimension of that is that we recognize and become the body and blood that we receive, the bread and wine given for the life of the world. That's exciting. Recognizing God's presence, God's companionship, and above all, God's love with us um, in the sacraments. I think we can end there. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. See you in church. <laughs>